The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander. Enjoy carefree motoring with Ireland's longest vehicle warranty. A full eight years. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Friday. It's News Talk and it's the right hook. This is George Hook here with you until 7 with the usual mix of news, comment and opinion. After 6 o'clock, Sean O'Neill looks at the week that was. And thanks to MasterCard, another chance for two people to go and see one of my wonders of the world. On the programme today, Gwyn Prince on the significance of the terror attack in Nice. A criminologist tries to get inside the mind of a killer. And Michael Graham, live from America. The Happiness Index, well, it's lost all its recent gains as terror once again enters our lives. You can text the right hook at 53106, cost 30 cents. The email is therighthook at newstalk.com. And you'll find me on Twitter at G Hook. This week has been an interesting week for the programme. First on the week, Amnesty International came into the studio to uh, defend somebody that our security services believe to be the most powerful ISIS recruiter in the country. Amnesty International suggested that our High Court, our Supreme Court, and indeed the European Court of Human Rights were soft on torture. To add to it, they asked, was I soft on torture? The reason he was deported was nobody believed his story, and I don't believe his story either. And what it really has to be done now, I think, is to ask what are Amnesty International doing? If this is the best they can do uh, to find a reason for their existence in Ireland, quickly followed, of course, by the anti-racism network, who accused this country of being racist, and we are not. And then finally, um, from the Department of Migration Studies in University College Cork, Pierish McHenry gave me a litany of so-called racist attacks that this country had perpetrated. All in the last seven days of the programme. And then I don't need to tell you about yesterday. Jean Monnet, in his great vision of a Europe together, built the EEC on the idea that Germany and war and, and France would never go to war again. There will never be war in Europe again. But Europe is at war. Is it is at war with believers who want to drag us back to the Middle Ages, who want to destroy our culture our beliefs, and our way of life. And what we have is people who are soft on that. This is not about Donald Trump or the National Front in France, but they will be the beneficiaries of what happened in Nice. What will happen is that reasonable voices asking for improvements in security, improvements in border control, improvements in the checking of so-called asylum seekers are shouted down by the cacophony of voices that call us racist. Because once the great racist word is used, we must be silent. The Minister for Justice, the Department of Justice, the Goddess Shia and the politicians know that we have an issue with illegal migration into this country. We learn more from politicians off air than we ever hear from them on air because they cannot give vent to their, their concerns for fear of being labelled racist. Well, the time has come for us, the reasonable people, the silent majority to ask every demand, nay demand, that those who run this country make every effort to protect our borders. 
because to to think that we can just avoid issues like the terror in Nice last night is an absolute nonsense. To suggest that we will someday avoid 85 people being killed, children turned into orphans in a matter of seconds by people who have no care for what we are. This is a battle. And our co-citizens, if the European Union is to mean anything, our co-citizens in France and French people in this country deserve not our sympathy, deserve not our prayers. They deserve and have a right to demand our support. Today, I am deeply upset. I am deeply upset because I know that so much of this is because we have taken the soft option and we have allowed the worst in our society to benefit. I am absolutely certain today Trump's opinion poll numbers have gone up. I'm absolutely certain that today in France, the National Front's opinion poll numbers have gone up. The future is not Trump and the National Front. The future is us. Yesterday, it was happy birthday for France. Little did I realise before the day would end, there would be that enormous tragedy. But I want to say to my French fellow citizens... Bon chance. I want to say to my fellow Europeans in France, I want to say, Allez France! And remember well today yet again, as I play this extraordinary anthem, that they and us are one in this fight. do want to go to an important topic because uh, Dublin City Council has uh, a ban essentially on buskers and limiting the time and the repertoire and so on. Um, I'm joined now by Bobby Coyne, who is Secretary of the Dublin City Buskers, and he's in the studio. I suppose, first of all, before we get to the City Council, Bobby, and welcome to the programme, we we didn't really, most of us probably didn't realise the buskers were organised. Well, we set up the organisation in February 2015. But just to point out one thing to you there, George, busking has been banned in two areas of Dublin since April 2015. Now, that ban is on amplification, acoustic performances, statues, so, currently in Dublin at the minute, there's two areas where you cannot busk. Which are? Which are around the GPO and 50% of Temple Bar. Okay. But what about the issue that, that, that the issue is noise, that it's 80 decibels? I had Frank MacDonald in here. I mean, he was primarily concerned, I have to be fair, that the actual pubs were blasting out the music. His his argument wasn't with buskers. But what about that? Surely there must be a control on the level of noise, must there not? 
There is, cur- there de- is currently in place a decibel limit on performances, but right. it's very hard to know where the noise is coming from. Now, Frank McDonald's main issue is noise in Temple Bar, and we feel like he's using the buskers as a hostage in the war on noise down there in Temple Bar. Well, um, he talked primarily about the pubs, but let's get away from Frank McDonald because the city's a big city, and as you say, there are only two areas. I mean, that leaves a ton of places for you to play your music, does it not? It, it would do, George, but uh, the DCB recognises that the main issues with busking are volume, repetition, quality and length to stay. And what we have suggested to Dublin City Council to alleviate these issues uh, is that there will be a one-hour performance time citywide, beginning on the hour and ending on the hour. Um, an act must be able to perform for 60 minutes without repeating of a song. And we suggested that on the quality issue, that if they wanted to hold auditions, we put about a framework based on what they do over in Melbourne which lays down clearly how people could be graded. You see, busking's been around for a long time, so I mean, there's a there's a tremendous tradition associated with this. Street performance might be might be a better word, because it's not just music, and street performers have been around, like with dogs who could stand on their hind legs or whatever, so, so therefore it would be a shame if that great tradition were gone. Um, when I first talked about this a number of years ago, one of the complaints was that the fella sang, you know, uh, Peggy Sue by Buddy Holly 150 times. Surely it's not beyond the wit of Dublin City Council to have a permit system where you come along and say, I am a busker and here's my performance and therefore give me a permit. Surely that's not beyond their their, their wit. Well, currently the system is in place um, is if you have 90 euros, you can be a street performer. So it's just purely based on a, if you have the money to pay for a permit. There's no quality control. Now, we would have issues with the so, permit system. But I thought they were trying to stop busking. Are not? I thought they were trying to stop it. So why are they handing out permits for 90 euro if they're trying to stop it? Well, they have stopped it in two areas in Dublin already. Right. And you, you're you afraid they'll stop it elsewhere, is it? Well, it's, it looks like it's going ahead that way. Um, we negotiated during the Street Performance Forum acoustic zones in Temple Bar and Temple Bar Square to be left a place where amplified performances could take place. Now, at the 11th hour, the full council voted in an emergency motion banning amplifiers on Temple Bar Square and that's what has the Dublin City buskers up in arms. We're not happy with this ban on the square and we're hoping that at the July 25th monthly meeting of the council that they will rescind this ban and hold up the agreements that they made to us during the street performance forum. When you talk about buskers and for instance numbers like 400 are being bandied about, are these, and I I think street performers is a better word as it happens because they may not be musicians. Um, If, like if I was going to be in in the middle of Grafton Street, I wouldn't be singing because I haven't a voice. So I'd be reciting, you know, Emmett's speech from the dock, okay? So it can be any kind of performance that is entertainment. So therefore, the 400 we talk about, are they professional performers in which they earn their livelihood by performing in the street? A large number of our members are professional buskers, but then you have other people who do it as a kind of a recreational activity at the weekend. Our members range in ages from 14, 15, up to 60 and 70 years of age. So yes. we have, a, we have a, a broad span of different nationalities, different cultures, different styles of music, blues, country, rock and roll. There's yeah. comedians and magicians that come out doing their thing. Well, I, I remember many times in Leicester Square, there were two guys, they're long dead now, I'm sure, but they were doing it for, for decades. They were tap dancers, and like they were tap dancing in Leicester Square. But that was part of the great tradition of 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 London and the idea of street performance. I was just wondering, in December, when we have all these carol singers, will they be under the same kind of legislation? Um, charities and religious organisations are exempt from the bylaws. But um, if you, you just less, have to set yourself up as a charity. Well, that could be the church of noise could be arranged very easily. But just bringing you back there, you mentioned Leicester and London uh, in uh, the UK since 2012. They've uh, rescinded the bylaws and street performance laws that they introduced. The permit system and all that was done away with. Instead, a simple code of conduct, couple of pages. 
was developed by the Buskers, uh, London City Council and the Metropolitan Police over there, along with a Buskers representative organisation called StreetsLive.org. Now, what they did there was they put together a voluntary code of practice and we actually got Dublin City Council to agree to adopt page 14 of this document, which is a clear method of resolving issues with street performance. Now, the difference here is that on page 14, it lays down the stages that things go to if there's a complaint. So if I'm playing outside your house, George, you come out and talk to me. If it's not resolved, the, the local city council intervene. If there's still an issue, the busking community, the peers of the guy who's performing there intervene. If nothing can be done at that stage, it's where you go for actual enforcement. Now, we won't see the current bylaws that are in place in Dublin as not working. The residents aren't happy, the business aren't businesses aren't happy and the buskers aren't happy. So there's something wrong. There's a poor creep of poor legislation happening currently in Dublin. And quite frankly, the Dublin City buskers have had enough of it. We've engaged with the council at every stage and they will not listen to what we have to say. But we're not sure that Dublin City Council has the best interests of the city at heart, given at the moment they're bringing in draconian uh, uh, speed limits, for instance. I mean, there's no certainty, in fact, that uh, these people sitting in Dublin City Council have the best interests at heart. I mean, what you really need is you you need um, somebody who, when I say represent you, uh, like cycling as people like Councillor Cough. So, Cycling gets a good deal because there's somebody taking it serious. I don't know anybody, you may correct me, but I don't know anybody who's out there beating a drum for buskers. It's not really a big issue in the city. There's other issues out there at the moment in Dublin. And I think, you know, Dublin City Council should maybe focus more of its time and money on the real issues. But just to bring up one thing there, uh, like... We're, we're talking about an arts SBC in Dublin City Council that agreed to a ban on illum pipes in Temple Bar. Now, how can any arts committee in Ireland agree to a ban on an, or, or national instrument without even discussing it? It got put in there to the full council mi- meeting where they had to rescind it. So we're dealing with people here who quite simply can't even read the, the reports that are in front of them. All right, uh Bobby Coyne, Secretary of Dublin City Buskers. I think it's appalling, I must say. I mean, I'm not talking about some fellow with a paper cup blowing a harmonica. We're talking about people who are talented. And uh, I think it's City Council. But as I said before, I despair of this City Council, I must say. Can I just say there, George, quickly, before please, I go, we, we have a hotline. It's on yeah. our website if you want to make a complaint about any aspect of busking. If you go to DublinCityBuskers.com, there's a complaint section there for you. All right, Bobby Coyne, thanks for joining me. I'm joined now by the Professor Emeritus of the London School of Economics, Gwydian Prince. Gwydian, welcome to the programme. Good evening, George. What do you make of all this? Well, there are several things, and I was just listening to your responses to the Twitterati. Um, Firstly, yes, we knew this was coming. There was no great surprise because the the Daesh, the uh, Islamists, uh, I'm glad to say, are being put under increasing pressure in Syria. And so we knew they were going to strike out again. But in answer to the Twitterati who've been criticizing you, let's uh, let's deal with what we know on the facts. And uh, as listeners will know from our conversations over the years. Um, My special subject is in the area of security. My nickname at ITV was Dr. Doom, because every time something went wrong, they called me up, and here we are today. So, what are the facts that uh, your colleagues who are Twittering need to pay attention to? Firstly, if they haven't read Saeed Qutub's Milestones, which is the foundation text of the Muslim Brotherhood, they really ought to, because do these people at least the courtesy of understanding why it is that they hate us quite as much as they do. Um, We shouldn't pretend that there isn't a problem here, because pretending just makes the problem worse. But I think that what's happened in Nice raises actually four issues that are worth flagging this evening, George. Uh, The first two are very obvious, um, and the first has been much discussed in France today, and it's the ongoing anxiety about problems uh, in the French security services And this is a continuation of the worry that there was that they weren't able to uh, catch the people before the perpetration of the November um, guerrilla terrorist attacks in Paris. Uh, Likewise, that they didn't have tabs on the individual who clearly was known to the French security services, although they they didn't manage to grab him beforehand. 
second issue is very neuralgic and, of course, was at issue very much in the minds of the people on this side of the Irish Sea in the referendum because it touches on the security of borders. Um, the control of Daesh lives in the badlands of northern Syria and Iraq. So that what's happening in Europe now is, is teleguided from those areas. And we know, as a matter of fact, that there was movement between Syria and France quite extensively before the November attacks. We don't know the situation with this present one yet, but we can be we can be fairly sure that there is an issue related to the security of EU borders, which the British people decided they actually don't want to have to go on trying to sort that problem out. They're going to take back control of their own borders. But the other two issues, which we might want to talk about a bit more, go back, George, to discussions we had, my goodness me, when, we st when I started having the privilege of talking on the right hook, when the right hook was new, right after 9-11, because we have signals for the perpetrators yeah. sent by the things in, okay. that happen in these, and we have signals for us, the victims. So we might want to look at both. But it's it, like you've been talking to us for 14 years now um, through all the great geopolitical stories that happened at that time. How do you answer people who say this is not uh, a problem of ISIS or the Islamic Brotherhood? This, uh, this um, and other atrocities were committed by citizens of the country in which the atrocity took place, like uh, the, the last night. He's a French citizen. Yes. Well, he seems to have been a Tunisian, actually, uh, of Tunisian birth, but a French citizen. And yes, the difficulty is where people have loyalties, when they actually have uh, double loyalties, or whether if they are Islamists, and I refer back again to reading Qutub's foundation text for the Brotherhood, it tells you quite clearly that your religious duty is to have a single loyalty, um, and that loyalty is not to the country of which you are a citizen. And that is a huge problem, because if you have a community which has a religious belief that says that it uh, will not uh, integrate, and furthermore, that it regards as kafir, that is to say, as, as heretics, uh, the, the majority population in the societies where they live, we have a huge problem. And the French, as, as you know, uh, have approached this um, with with closed eyes for many years because they simply locked away these, these North African immigrants into these grim suburbs around the big cities. And now this seems to be where many of these problems have come from. But you see, I, I think that the Nice attack, which is peculiar in the number of casualties that it's produced, as everybody's saying today, but it's also peculiar in two other ways. Firstly, it is extremely cleverly designed. And I use that word in a neutral sense, George, it's just looking at it as a as a as a military operation, because they clearly they chose uh, a place where they get, could guarantee that they were going to get maximum world media attention by attacking um, the, the the Boulevard des Anglais in Nice, full of tourists, and doing it with a lorry, which is the traditional weapon of attack of jihadists. It's what they did, uh, for example, when they blew up the military headquarters in Mosul in June of 2014, and they have done this in other places. Sorry, too. Gwen, you, you, you say there, you use the plural, you, you say, like, they plan this very cleverly, and mm. they design. You, clearly, you don't believe that this is uh, a lone wolf attack by a deranged man. Well, we don't know is the yes. answer to that. But what we do know is that there's a sort of playbook, and this is what happens in the world of the Internet which is that many of the ideas, like using trucks, like, uh, for example, look at the day of the week on which this attack happened. It happened on the eve of the holy day for Muslims, which is a way of sending a sort of, a sort of subliminal message to people from the Islamic State to say that this is a sort of religiously legitimated attack, uh, just in the same way that they chose the date so carefully at 9-11. So all of those things can be picked up by individuals. But in this case, I would be surprised, frankly, if we find that it's a lone wolf, because early reports suggest that there were also weapons uh, found in this, in this lorry as well. But the, the other symbolism, of course, is, is what it means for the victims. And this was very carefully, very carefully chosen. 
uh, firstly, as I've already said, because it, it maximized the chance of international media attention by choosing a tourist location. And secondly, a time when French people were focusing on the issue of the celebration of the French Republic, which was Bastille Day, 14th of July. And so to choose that day, it had all sorts of resonances because it's saying to them, it's saying to the French people, we can touch you in the places where you have fun on the sun, in the sun, and we can hit you on the days that are of greatest significance to you. So it, it's supposed to maximize people's fear of powerlessness. But the, the, the issue for a country like Ireland, there are people uh, sending me messages, for instance, which are saying there is no way there will ever be a terrorist attack of this nature in Ireland. Now, isn't that deeply worrying? Well, it is, because I'm afraid I don't know where they get their certainty that that would be so. Uh, my country is acutely aware that uh, we face this as a, as a daily risk, and mercifully we have uh, intelligence services who work quietly behind the scenes, and, and their success, this is one of the ironies of their work, is, is when nothing happens. Um, and so largely speaking, we manage to avoid these things. And, and there is cooperation, I have absolutely no doubt, uh, between your, your country and mine in these sorts of matters. We are all allies in facing this remorseless threat, which comes from, as, we, as we're describing, George, and as your Twitter critics need to understand, a very remorseless and completely unconditional type of terrorism. This is not, to take a very direct example, this is not like the IRA in the north of Ireland, because it had a political demand. In other words, you could satisfy that demand and they would, they would go away. These people are not like that. This is a sort of a position which says everything about you we do not accept unless you will convert or unless you become dimmy in the phrase, that is to say, unless you become slaves of the caliph. The only other option for you is to die. And that's what you find when you read Said Qutub which people should do if they have any doubt about what the ideology is of the Muslim Brotherhood, which drives these people. All right. My guest, of course, is the Professor Emeritus of, uh, in, in the, sorry, the London School of Economics, William Prince, who, who first spoke to us 14 years ago, all that time on the program, and almost every geopolitical issue. Gwyn has been there to, to, to explain things to us. I, in a way, am worried about one thing on a personal level, is that although uh, I, I, I think we're sleepwalking and I think um, we, we, we are simplistic in everything we do, defending against this is unbelievably difficult. Well, that's absolutely true. Um, I, I have a very good friend who is a professor at the, the Military Academy Saint-Cyr in Paris. And Professor Flichy de Lanavie was on French television today, and he made a point that I'd like to pass on for people to think about. He said, there is no technical solution, because what you're dealing with here is a religious and a cultural attack, which is what I've just been trying to describe. And unless you can disarm it in those terms, then you can only block it in technical means and by intelligence. So... It's a sort of, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a fundamental question about a conversation between cultures. And at the moment, there is no conversation because this particular branch of Islamism is systematically deaf. It just doesn't want to listen. But if you talk about Muslims, I mean, we've just got over Ramadan. I'm reasonably certain every Muslim in Ireland didn't actually fast during during Ramadan. No more than every Jew in Ireland didn't necessarily have, you know, swear off bacon for his breakfast. Or, like recently, the number of Sikh taxi drivers who've taken me home who don't wear the turban. Surely there must be a substantial percentage of the Muslim communities in our countries who abhor this? Look, it's not just a substantial number. It's the vast majority. And those traditions, those quietest traditions within Islam, like Sufi, for example, um, and, and others, they are engaged in an asymmetric civil war. And this is why 
they need to hear from us, their allies and their friends. They need to hear not only the words that say we see you as legitimate members of our society, but that we recognize the true nature of your enemies, who are our enemies, who are the Islamists. And that's why in this conversation, I've been uh, respectfully urging those people who've been uh, offering you these generalizations to go away and actually read what these people believe. Because once we say to the, the quietists, to the, the, the vast majority of normal Muslims who are citizens of our countries and who just want to be allowed to get on with their own lives in the toleration which our democracies permit, once we say to them, we actually understand the nature of this minority, and we will support you as you try to deal with the radicalization of your young people, and we will help you in resisting that, then we are in with a chance. But if we have a sort of wishy-washy relativism that says, ah, well, somehow there's implicit racism if you suggest that there's something wrong here, then we are lost. But if you go back to your school days, I go back to mine, and then I go to my children's and my grandchildren, in all those schools, in Britain and Ireland and France and Germany and Italy, there were inspections of the schools. We we knew what the, what the curriculum was, all that. But in these um, uh, Muslim schools in, in, in both our countries, mm. there's, like, last night on television, there were real concerns about the mosque here in Klansky and its, its relationship with the Islamic Brotherhood uh, in in the Middle East, uh, but nobody goes nobody goes in the door of the place and examines what young people are being taught there. Well, that that is true uh, in in many cases. I mean, I'll take your particular case, which was famous in this country, and you may know of it also. The, tro- the Trojan Horse investigation of um, Islamist radicalization of schools in Birmingham. Yes, uh, that study, which was done in great detail by the former uh, head of counterterrorism and met Peter Clark, um, and then I read the study, is absolutely hair-raising because it shows the comprehensive nature uh, on the one hand of the radicalization and on the other of the suppression, if you like, the blackmailing of anybody who went against these people. And that's why I made the point that I just did, George, that if we do not support the vast majority of people who within the faith of Islam, do not support this way of uh, conducting themselves and who are horrified, if we don't show them that we understand the nature of their, of their enemy in this civil war within the Ummah, then they are going to feel even more betrayed and left alone. So we have to be resolute. And I hope very much that uh, our new prime minister, who's just spent a term as uh, the longest serving and secretary of the, the last hundred years, and who's very well familiar with these things. I hope that she's going to make sure that her successor in office, Amber Rudd, is extremely firm in pursuing this agenda right. in our country, and I hope that, that your authorities would do the same in yours. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, the Professor Emeritus uh, at the London School of Economics, uh, Gwyn Prince. And I must say, uh, long may Gwyn continue to contribute uh, to the right hook. Everybody's talking about what happened in Nice, uh, but now we're going to try and get inside the mind of the lone wolf terrorist. I'm joined by John O'Keefe, criminologist and lecturer in criminal law. John, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, I, I thought it was seven virgins. I thought the idea was that, like, you were committing martyrdom, so you were going to live forever in eternity, yeah, surrounded by beautiful women. That's my understanding. But, of course, I mean, what ISIS has sold psychologically is a lot more than that. It's also right. giving these people a kind of a nirvana on earth. Now, not this particular guy who crashed into these poor, unfortunate people, but if you're looking at them out in Syria and northern Iraq, what are they giving them is a one-year, two-year, three-year period where they will be the kings, where they will be in charge. These are people who had no significance before and now suddenly have a lot of it. They've got beautiful wives, women who want to be married to martyrs, so they're going to have a sexual nirvana on earth and they're also going to have it in heaven. I mean, it's a heady cocktail. My view about it is it's a wonder there aren't more men out there doing what happened last night because of the promise that's been given to these people, falsely, of course. But, you know, when you're in the gutter, everything looks fantastic. Uh, I mean, in that regard, there was those three or four girls from Britain 
you know, young girls, school girls who left and, mm. and then through uh, various routes eventually got uh, to Iraq or Syria. I, I had never heard it expressed in that way, but um, it, this in a way is the sort of power Absolutely. is, is a, a, a drug really. Yeah, it's it? a drug and you've got to look at it from their perspective. So one day they are absolutely nobody and the next day they can be actually more than a footnote in history. They can be they can be a martyr, they can have all that sexual and Havana we talked about. And of course there are women with equally fragile psychological templates, poor social and environmental backgrounds, economic destitution, who are happy to follow these savage hypermasculine males into into war zones because there's a psychological term for them. They're known as hybristophiles. These are women who are deeply attracted to violent and sexually uh, violent men. So there's a, there's a whole melting pot there for these people to go from nobody to somebody. But having said that... Um in Vietnam, for instance, women walk towards the American lines with, with, with bombs strapped to their back and eventually mm. the Americans just shot them anyway just in case. Mm. And most of the time they were right. Uh, in our own Northern Ireland, what we saw uh, in many of the terrorists who were uh, loyalist or Republican were deeply flawed individuals who were sadists or, or whatever. So... It's not just Islam here. No, no, absolutely not. But nor should we automatically assume that every person who commits these atrocities is a grade A hair psychopath, as they're known. We don't know that. We do know they have personality issues. We do know they may have a personality disorder. But I think last night is, is really serious on so many levels. Obviously, on its uh, definitively, it's serious for all those people and all those families. It's, it's horrific. But what it's taken us to is an absolutely new level. I know it's been said today, but it needs to be said again. These people are now simply going into trucks. So in other words, there needs to be the the ISIS franchise is a very loose one. We've got people all over the world who can be franchisees by just putting up their hand and saying, today I'm going to commit an atrocity. You automatically become a franchisee. Now what's happening is forget guns, bombs, bullets and suicide belts. You just need to simply get into a truck and you can create absolute havoc. So what's the next step? Probably something like petrol. You go to your petrol station, you set fire to a youth hostel, you kill a hundred children. This is where it's going to go. The question is, how do you create a counter-narrative to that deeply attractive narrative to these deeply troubled people? That's the challenge. And the challenge, I think, for, for governments and globally is, how do we create equally good men in black tight boiler suits who are going to defend the Koran and defend good words and say, no, you people are bad. In other words, the kind of guardian angels that we saw going around New York in the 70s and 80s, we need to create that countercultural narrative. But that can only come from the Muslim community. It can't come from your eye, But we have no certainty about the Muslim community. We don't know who's good or bad in the Muslim community. I think we can make... I mean, just last night on national television on RTE, there's an investigation into the mosque in Klansky, a carefully forensic study of the imam in the in the mosque uh, in Klansky, who who is not clearly, it's not obviously one of your counter-narrative people. Well, let me put it this way without speaking about that person, but let me put it this way. If we look at the um, IRA campaign and make just this comparison, just this one, in the North over 30 years, 98% of the Roman Catholic population were not involved in that. Perhaps 2% were. What did the 98% do? Did they join them? No. Did they contribute to them? No. But they stayed silent. And the silence is the problem. And there is, there are very good people in the Islam, in Muslim community who are speaking out and we're hearing it every day and there are a lot of them but there needs to be more of a groundswell in the same way there needed to be more Roman Catholics who would groundswell opinion and say the IRA uh, you know we need more than Enniskillen for example to say we're sick of it we need more than the peace marches we need that now to happen in the Muslim community they need to stand up a lot of them are but now more need to do it but therefore um, for people like me for instance who call for security for for things like that uh, that doesn't work if some fella gets into a truck. No, and let's just talk about security for one second. I am not diminishing that. I've given you the big political subcultural narrative. That's all rubbish when people are dying on the streets. You need to control them in as far as you can. You cannot prevent last night. There will be more, and you better expect there's going to be a big one in Britain. It's been, it's been uh, teeming
sitting there for a long time and that's where we're going to see the next one unfortunately. But what you can do is create a, su- a security situation where you minimise the amounts of death that there would have been. It happened in Brussels airports but but for the security that was in Brussels um, all those months ago twice the amount of people would be killed. But for the fact there were literally hundreds of gendarmes and army around Nice last night that guy could have killed another 80. But we're only talking about minimisation. We're not talking about stopping it and the only way you're going to stop it is the same way this has been created over the last 30 years. We now have to spend the next 30 years trying to unravel it and we unravel it at its rotten core which is the Middle East and that's a global problem. It's always been an issue. Look how they're dying out in the Middle East, how ISIS are getting wiped out there. They can't do a full frontal war but what they can do is a guerrilla war and that's where our problems lie. All right, uh, my guest is uh, John O'Keefe, criminologist and of course criminal law lecturer but there is a complete sense in Ireland before you go. I mean, you mentioned the next one's going to be Britain. There is a sense in Ireland that there is no problem. Oh, and that's always been the case in Ireland. There never is a problem until it visits us here. And thankfully, it hasn't visited us here. But it is going to come to Britain. As sure as night follows day, that is the next place. Disfranchise couple of men up in Birmingham or Leicester, wherever it might be. And if it's over there, it can be over here. And why can't it be over here? Of course it can be over here. Our neutrality is a contrivance. They, they, those people in the Middle East don't see us as neutral. They see us as Westerners. They don't care about leprechauns or comely maidens standing at the crossroads. If they want to come here, they will and may be coming soon. All right, uh, John O'Keefe, as I said, criminologist and lecturer in criminal law. I'm joined by James Dempsey of Newstalk.com. Uh, I really liked last week, I must say, the disaster that is real. I think you're better on disasters than good news stories. I think so as well. I, I, you, yeah. I, like, I like a good complaining session, you know. <laughs> have you got a disaster for me, so? I have, I have several. I have. <laughs> so I thought today, as Donald Trump has just announced who his vice presidential you know, appointee will be, which is Governor Pence of Indiana. Uh, the I, unknown Governor Pence the, the of Indiana. The unknown, yeah. that I would talk to you a little bit about the Amer- some terrible American vice presidents throughout history. History? Now you're going back a long way. I'm going back, I suppose, the furthest I'm going back is to the 19th century, which is not too long, but the 14th one is the first one I'll talk how about. How many have there been? <laughs> I don't 40 know. 40-something, maybe. I anyway, so. All right, all right so go back to the 14th one. Okay, so the 14th one is also the youngest one to have ever served. Yeah. And his name was John C. Breckenridge, and he was the vice president to... President Buchanan. And he's Buchanan was a Northern Ireland fellow, I think. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think but, he was. Uh, he is an interesting one because what happened to him, he actually, while he was vice president, he was pretty benign. He didn't really yeah. do much. After he was vice president in 1860, he decided to run for Oval Office. And in doing so, went up against Abraham Lincoln and lost and then fled back to his home state of Kentucky and basically threw a hissy fit and decided to try and convince Kentucky to secede from the Union <laughs> and to join the Confederate Army. And the, he was then immediately arrested for... Uh, treason. For treason, is right. And he fled to Florida, where he hopped on a boat, which was then beset by pirates. <laughs> then he got into a dinghy, and the wind blew the mast off the dinghy, so he sort of floated around the Caribbean for a couple of weeks, and then eventually washed up in Cuba, where they uh, greeted him with a band playing Yankee Doodle and the uh, Star Spangled Banner, which apparently drove him insane. And he uh, was finally pardoned in 1868. And uh, his name, though, has been forever tarnished because there was a a town named after him called uh, Breckenridge, obviously, in Colorado. But they changed the spelling so that it is slightly different from his name because they didn't like him anymore. All right. So relatively, you know, you know, nice start. You were probably quite, you were probably quite surprised. I was in Breckenridge, Colorado. I am quite surprised. Yeah, right. well, I, I lived in Colorado Springs for a while, so okay. there's a lot of places in Colorado that I was in. What can you tell me about Breckenridge? Not a lot. There's much better places like Aspen, where some of the most wonderful women in the world congregate during the winter, skiing up and down the slopes. Okay. Colorado Springs is the center of the inter, of the American Olympic Committee. I see. Well, well, there you go. I this ties into our Rio complaining of last week. <laughs> so who's next? Okay, so then we'll we'll jump forward to yeah. uh, 1988 and to Dan Quayle. Dan, Danforth Quayle, I believe yeah. was his name. Cowardly Dan, who didn't, who avoided the draft. 
I didn't know that. But what I did know is that he was prone to making some very stupid statements. Apparently, not to, you know, besmirch anyone, but uh, he was not a very clever man. He, when, he was, when, when Bush Sr. nominated him, it was much to everyone's surprise because he was a relatively unknown senator. An unknown Egypt. An unknown Egypt at that, who, who refused to give out his university transcripts. And then when they were finally revealed, he, it was shown that he had failed several exams while in university, barely scraped a pass, and that he'd only gotten into law school because of a sort of uh, programme for sort of equal opportunities for... for Stupid people. <laughs> I think... I, I wouldn't quite put it that way, but yeah, basically. Uh, my, he had some great quotes, uh, which I thought were well worth reading out. Uh, my favourites include, he said this, Republicans understand the importance of bondage between a mother and child. <laughs> and I believe we are on an irreversible trend toward more freedom and democracy. But that could change. <laughs> What was interesting about him was in the 1988 uh, election, he went, there was, a, there was a televised debate between him and I suppose it was Dukakis's, it was hard to say, Dukakis's vice presidential nominee who was a man named Lloyd Benson. And the, there's a road named after him in Houston. That I did not know either. Lloyd Benson Highway. I did know he was a Texas yeah. senator anyway, yeah. but we have a clip from the from Oh, the this debate. is a wonderful clip. I want to hear this. I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. Senator, I served with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. (laughs) One of the great put-downs of all time. His response is actually very embarrassing. Quayle sort of responds by saying that was very out of uh, that was very out of sorts or something really yeah. silly, and it just it looked very embarrassing. Yeah. Okay, his, you, you have know, a wide choice of stupid things with Quayle. I wonder will you get to the biggest one? Keep going. I know exactly what you're going to talk Off about. You go. You're going to talk about potatoes. Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Off you go. Yeah. I gave you the hint. Thank you. Very famously, Dan Quayle went into a, an elementary school in New Jersey at some point during his vice presidency. And got a boy up to the blackboard and asked him... It was a black girl, but it's all right, go on. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, He got her to go up to the blackboard and spell out the word potato. And she dutifully and accurately put a letter P-O-T-A-T-O. And then he quickly prompted her to add an extra E to the end of it. (laughs) So quite a man. (laughs) Yeah, but he also uh, dodged the draft. Not well. Speaking of do- dodging, is an excellent segue into our next man. So this yeah. is a man named Thomas Marshall. Now yeah. he was the vice president of Woodrow Wilson, and I think of all the vice presidents that I investigated, he is my favourite because he was very quick-witted and also very blasé about the role of the vice presidency. Because you know, in the lead up to the election, we always think of it as one you know heartbeat away from the presidency, but the reality is that very rarely happens. And they're often a safe pair of hands who just sit around doing nothing. And he was very happy to sit around doing nothing. <laughs> in his inauguration speech, he said that he promised to acknowledge the insignificance of the office and to accept his second-class role in a in a good-natured way. He may well have been. Now, I don't know this. Usually I'm very I fancy myself in my certainties, but I'm not. But one fellow certainly said that the vice presidency wasn't worth the spittoon full of spit. It probably was him, because it sounds like the kind of thing he would <laughs> yeah. do. He and Wilson had a very tempestuous relationship. They didn't yeah. get on at all, because he was sort of very free-living free and yeah. just enjoying himself. In fact, after his first cabinet meeting, he didn't go to another one for his entire eight years, or however, well, his entire two terms as vice yeah. president. Wilson and Obama, of course, are the two worst presidents in history, also sharing the same uh, talent university professors. Well, you'll like then what uh, Thomas Marshall wrote to Wilson in a book because he he gifted him a book and in it he wrote to Wilson uh, from your only vice, which was a <laughs> nice, clever thing to do. When Wilson actually had his stroke and then could no longer be president, uh, Thomas Marshall refused to become the president. The president uh, was Mrs. Wilson. That's right. So they didn't tell anybody that your man was... Uh, Horse to come back. Well, he he refused to step up to the plate, okay. and then when uh, Calvin Coolidge was elected, he uh, just sent him a letter saying, uh, "With my greatest sympathies." And then we'll. Oh, move sorry, on. 
we got a we got a text. It was John Sant's gardener said uh, it wasn't worth the bucket of spit. Those those listeners at home, Thank you can't you pull the wool over there. No, you right? can't pull the wool over anybody outside. All right, we'll move on to Richard. Uh, James Dempsey is with me with. Um, uh, great in inverted commas vice presidents <laughs> of the USA you can find James every day on the newstalk.com website so we'll move on to Nixon his vice president well he he as vice president oh so he was vice president to Eisenhower from, from 1952 on to 1960 yeah and he was well, while in the electoral campaign uh, it was the first time it emerged as him being tricky dick because yeah. he was involved in a little scandal where it was revealed that uh, very wealthy businessmen were uh, piling money into a fund for him and this sort of came out in the newspaper and he was forced to give this very famous half an hour long speech that has become known as the Checkers speech Yes, in which he admitted, uh, so he said his wife didn't even own a mink coat and he admitted to receiving one thing from a dodgy businessman, and here he is explaining what that one thing is. You know what it was? It was a little cocker spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checkers. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. Ah, if ever. Tricky Dicky could lie better than any person I know. <laughs> Maybe not Tony Blair. But uh, <laughs> anyway, right. But uh, are you going to get Tricky Dicky's vice president? I will, Spiro. We'll get on to Spiro in a second. One, he's the last one I'll talk about. One thing I will say about It Nixon, is nearly 7 o'clock. I, the I'm traffic aware, is actually piling up in Grafton I'm Street. I'm aware. I will just quickly say that uh, the rest of his two terms as vice president, Nixon did nothing. And Eisenhower, when asked to speak of his contributions, said, if you give me a week, I might think of one. So I'll move on to Spiro Agnew very quickly, who uh, people will probably... Greek-American? ...will probably know as the vice president who stepped down, retired from office in disgrace a year before the Waterhouse, force, Waterhouse scandal forced Nixon out as well because he was involved in a, uh, well, he was involved in a tax, some sort of tax tax collusion or something in his Just his state. simple tax evasion. Tax James. evasion. I know you used to write and claptrap on news. Well, I should com, say... But that's just a- simple tax evasion. But Spiro Agnew's biggest drawback was not actually tax evasion. You know what it was? Was it his alliteration by any chance? No, even worse than his alliteration. He was the worst golfer ever and he would play in charity tournaments and he used to hit people with the golf ball because there'd be lines of people, you know, down the fairway and he used to hit people and knock people out. It was quite dangerous to watch Spyro Agnew play golf. Okay, well, him and Dick Cheney shooting people in the face as well. They have something (laughs) in common. (laughs) Yeah. But you watch a TV show called Veep, don't you? I'm a huge fan. Do you like it? Is that about vice president? It is about a a female vice president named Selena Meyer. And it is is full of foul language, but it is wickedly funny. And is she dodgy? No, she's sort of, it's a brilliant sitcom that sort of shows you how boring it must actually be up at the top. To be Veep. To be Veep. The one, the one thing you didn't do, and understandably, because you you were looking at some awful vice presidents, right. but then you look at two really interesting ones, which you might do someday. Harry Truman, who assumed office when Roosevelt died, and World War Two was still going on, and of course, famously, LBJ. Lyndon B. Yeah. Listen, thanks for popping in. Heaven knows where you'll go next week. <laughs> I'm still trying to get over uh, the lagoon in Rio that is all the fecal abnormalities <laughs> floating around. In it. George, you shouldn't let these things plague you. I worry about it, like going for a swim in Rio. But do you remember I said to you that I knew a fella uh, who went down there and they stole his... Um, his towel off I the do, beach yes. when we were talking about uh, law and order. I do. He rang me up and he said, God bless your memory. <laughs> <laughs> James Dempsey, back next week. Thanks very much, George.